Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Today I have with me the co-hosts of the Political Climate Podcast, Julia Piper and Shane Skelton. No Brandon, though. We left him off. Um, do you think he's going to be sad, Julia? I do. I do. We are a bit of a trio, but I know that it's a lot of voices to have on a single podcast. So we'll do our best in representing him while he's not here. There's something about the latency of recording remotely like this. And the more voices you add, it's just uh, it becomes chaos. Uh, they require a lot of editing. So sorry, Brandon, maybe we'll have you on some other time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And hopefully your co-hosts do you well in uh, in your stead. Uh, Julia is co-host and producer of Political Climate, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and contributing editor at Green Tech Media, covering the global energy transition. And Shane is a co-founder and partner at S2C Pacific, an energy and environmental consultancy firm. Shane uh, also previously worked with Paul Ryan as a council and policy advisor on the House Budget Committee. So thanks both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's kind of cool being on someone else's pod. I'm excited to see where this goes. <laughs> yeah, well, I like the show, Political Climate. I think it's a, a unique type of show in this space. I don't think there's anyone else doing podcasting within the, the climate sector quite like you are. So what exactly is Political Climate supposed to achieve? What is it? How do you view this project that you're working on together? <laughs> uh, I'll jump in and give a little overview and then Shane, of course, uh, add your thoughts. But you know, this podcast kind of started organically. We all knew each other out here in Los Angeles, having all previously lived in D.C., uh, not knowing each other at that point in time and having different experiences. Uh, me covering climate and energy policy on the Hill and around town. You know, Shane working on the Hill and Brandon in the administration as chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And then, you know, people kind of find each other as they move to new cities. And we started it as a Facebook Live video, which we now lovingly refer to as the hostage video, because we were jammed into this tiny frame, trying to talk about climate and energy issues, using a new medium, trying to do something different. And that really didn't work. You know, flash forward, we're now in our third year, and we really just wanted to open up a new kind of dialogue on bringing together different voices and discussing pressing issues of our time, uh, and showing that you can do it even when you don't agree and do it in a civil manner. And we're super lucky to get the USC Schwarzenegger Institute on board to support us. And now we're continuing on that journey. Yeah, it's been really cool. I think, you know, part of the reason that I do it, I would say most of the reason that I do it is that I, I want to normalize this conversation on the right and the left. I mean, some feedback that we get is, um, or that I get specifically is, 
you don't have a vote in the Senate. You're not Mitch McConnell, so your opinion doesn't matter. It is true that I can't generate an outcome amongst Republicans, but what I do think I can do is work with other like-minded people and just normalize this. Once things become part of the common vernacular, you just, you know, you're going to see people more willing to address climate to talk about it. Because if you call, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Republicans weren't even willing to talk about climate. Even saying it made you like, you know, a persona non grata. Now they're having daily conversations about it, even if, you know, the policies they're proposing aren't as aggressive as, as what some would like to see and, you know, what I'd like to see. I do think that just making climate change a normal topic of discussion similar to other politically pressing issues in its own right is a huge win. Indeed. And the Schwarzenegger Institute, we've had Conyers Davis on the podcast before, and they've been very kind to us. Uh, When I think about Arnold Schwarzenegger and his sort of intellectual and political legacy, it is just trying to cross the aisle and be transpartisan, especially in terms of environmental politics in California. So it seems like this is sort of just an ethos that's baked into what is happening over there and also what you're doing because you explicitly have party-affiliated co-hosts that are uh, members of the Democratic and Republican parties, and you're trying to talk to one another. And And a Canadian uh, moderator and host. Isn't that hilarious? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. I can can see it fitting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's a useful project. I can see people reacting against this pretty strongly too, where uh, Shane, as you were alluding to, even talking about climate change a decade ago in conservative circles might have written you off as a, as a wackadoo, perhaps. But now it <laughs> seems like on the left, there's a lot of concern about platforming and whether we should even be sharing the stage with people that we disagree with. And the stakes seemingly have gone up on a number of issues such that it's, it's hard to even talk to one another. I'm sure you've faced this criticism before. What are you doing with it? It's absurd to me about platforming. I mean, I cannot possibly understand how if you as a community view an issue as incredibly important and worthy of extreme government action, that you would think that that same important issue shouldn't be subject to discussion and you shouldn't want it out there. I mean, saying that people who don't share your um, exact ideas on how to address this shouldn't be allowed to speak, I think is dangerous. Interestingly, with Brandon and, and working with him a lot, it's not just like a crossfire type show, as you noted. It's not like we're yelling at each other and Julie is yelling at us. Um, we actually talk and learn and, and we talk offline a lot. Like I, I'll have client issues and call Brandon and say, hey, I really, you know, I want to understand this. I, I don't view the world this way, but here's what I'm hearing. Can you help me make sense of that? I, I think the discussion is not just for entertainment purposes. There's actually a lot we can all learn from one another because I do think people are hardwired a certain way. You know, there's nature versus nurture, but but I think people ultimately think the way they think. And it's very difficult to change that. But if we can learn and understand why, maybe we can have a more productive discussion on how to reach solutions, uh, even if it requires some compromise. So I think silencing people or saying that, you know, the Republicans shouldn't have a voice in this discussion. I don't understand that at all. And I'm proud of what our show does. And I'm grateful for, you know, the Schwarzenegger Institute wanting to prop us up to do that. Yeah. And if I'll just add, um, you know, we don't want to participate in balances bias when it comes to climate issues where you're sort of giving undue weight to an opinion that is totally unfounded in, say, science, like climate denialism. And we don't do that. Like both of our co-hosts, Brandon and Shane, acknowledge that there is a threat from climate change. The discussion comes down to how do you want to address it? And that's where I think a variety of perspectives can be 
valid. Like we are about to have a show coming up where we speak to the top labor organizations in the country. There are a lot of jobs that will change as a result of the energy transition. That is a fact. And even if you want bold climate action, you have to figure out what the solutions are for those people. And you can put that lower or higher on your list, but it is a valid topic. And by just saying it doesn't fit into a certain set of solutions and let's just ignore it doesn't make that issue go away. So we're trying to lean into those tricky and sticky um, elements of this dialogue and and give them give them a platform, but not denialism and not ideas that are really harmful. I think that's a very useful distinction. Do you think that you and your co-hosts share the same values and what you spend a lot of time discussing are maybe means of getting there? Or do you find that there are more substantive values-based discussions about what a society should look like that somehow get in the way? I think we we definitely, I can't speak for Julia specifically because she does a pretty good job of staying, you know, moderator and, and not pushing too hard on any specific point of view. But I think for Brandon and I, we have very different values insofar as what we think a society should look like. I think what we do really well and what I wish more people did well is we can accept that each other views the world differently and still try to have practical conversations about action that can be taken now and then action that's aspirational. And you may get to the aspirational, you may not. I mean, Brandon wants to get there much more quickly than I do on some of the stuff, not, not on all of it, of course. But I, I think that if you asked me, you know, King for a day to build the economy, it'd look a heck of a lot like it does right now. Uh, if you asked Brandon, it'd look a heck of a lot more like, you know, the Green New Deal. So certainly a big gap in what we think the world should look like, but uh, a lot of overlap in at least steps that we think we can take based on the current construct to make climate change less of a threat or at least mitigate it to the extent possible with aggressive action. I think the tension ultimately comes down to this pressure that I think we all feel to act swiftly based on climate science. And that's where this tension comes down to is people saying that you cannot do half measures right now. You can't take moderate steps. There's just no space and no time for that. But that comes in conflict with just the way we're seeing U.S. politics work right now, where it's so hard to get anything passed. And so you have this trade-off where do you risk doing nothing for you know, another 10 years, nothing at all, because half measures were not, you know, palatable? Or do you take some of those early wins and see maybe clean energy markets grow, companies have stronger balance sheets, the economic case becomes stronger, and five years from now, you can have a bolder discussion because you set that groundwork earlier on. I understand that tension. And I think that tension is playing out into this media realm and who makes sense to talk to and what points are valid. But I don't know, I just Pose to people to think that through of what they think um, the actions should be and, you know, what's valid to discuss right now. In our view, I think it's all valid to at least discuss. Um, and we can't say what people should ultimately do. We are not policymakers. But our view is like, let's bring it all to the table and figure it out from there and not shut anything down uh, for not being the perfect solution because we don't live in that world, unfortunately. That makes sense to me. Um, I guess the mere image of this deplatforming phenomenon that has happened on the left is the right has, and Shane, correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, is that there has been solution aversion about climate change within conservative circles where the solutions that are proposed are not friendly to, to free markets. And therefore, they oftentimes start way back at the beginning, denying that it's even a problem to begin with, and then sort of make these gradual concessions until we're getting there. Because I think they're worried... I'm sorry, we have to have Naomi Klein on the show at some point because she gets brought up in this every time it comes up. But I think there's a tendency on the right to view climate action on the left as a Trojan horse for all the policies they always wanted. And look, 
It just so happens to also be very good at addressing climate change. And isn't that convenient? And that's sort of this uh, right-wing narrative about left-wing climate action. But it seems like that's changing now, right? It looks like conservatives are starting to move and make some some climate plays. Okay, first of all, is what I just said at least halfway accurate? And then second of all, like what is happening now? I think what you said is accurate. I mean, one thing that I like to talk about when people say, you know, you can't take half measures and all that sort of stuff is, you know, there's like a basic communication skill, which we've all learned at some point in our life was like, you can say yes, but, or yes, and, and I just don't get when even, you know, some of these Republican proposals aren't enough to solve the problem. Why not just say yes, and rather than like, yes, but we're actually not going to do that because it's not enough. Why not? Yes, that's a great idea. And also, you know, we could do some additional things as well. I do think that- Well, depending on what the solution is. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't think anyone should ever disagree with getting carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, even if that's not carbon capture or, you know, atmosphere capture is not the most likely outcome. Like there's no reason to be against it, but uh, in my opinion, but uh, I would say on the Trojan horse issue, I think that's always sort of been a fear in conservative circles and one that I've shared in the past. I think that that was starting to subside. The Green New Deal, as I've talked about a lot on our show, I think is dangerous because it makes plain, you know, what was hidden before, Ross, is that for some people, um, it is a Trojan horse. For some people, they're saying, we just need to rebuild the economy from scratch. The current system of, of American, you know, exceptionalism or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't work. It's no good. And we got to start over uh, and do something totally different. I think they said out loud what people feared uh, was true, but actually it might have it might have helped in a way because some Democrats have differentiated themselves from that. And now you're having, you know, Republicans making comments, too. So maybe one of the benefits of the Green New Deal and that sort of economic reconstruction will be that people are able to differentiate between an entire new form of government and some targeted climate policy solutions. So it may be a backdoor to to having more productive discussions in the long run. Well, I hope you're right about that. Uh, Is this maybe symptomatic of something bigger of just how we speak with one another about politics. It seems like during the course of my lifetime, the stakes for everything have felt higher and higher. And that could be an accurate representation of reality. The stakes are perhaps objectively higher than they have been in the past, especially for things like climate change. So like one of the things that I'm really, okay, this is a double-edged sword. So for me, I try to read a lot and I try to read stuff that I don't always agree with. And I try to find the best in it and be charitable. I don't always do this. I, that's a standard I try to apply to myself. The double-edged part of it though is oftentimes I become wiggly and I'm willing to see uh, nuance and be fair, even in cases where I'm like, this guy's a jerk. Why am I spending so much time trying to find this like golden nugget in here? So that's a downside of being perhaps too civil or, or too fair. But what exactly are the contours of where we should be having these conversations in order to get back to a place where we can respect one another and actually make productive progress? Or is this just no longer a thing? How do we get back to that place? Or would it ever even exist? Because I'm also looking back to the times of growing up and uh, like hearing Rush Limbaugh on AM radio. Was that really that much more uh, uncivil than it is now? I mean, I think we would point to some things that actually happened in Washington, D.C. that made it more partisan. It does feel like, and I think there's studies pointing to this, that we are living in a more divided and polarized time. Some things on the policymaking side was, um, and I'll note for arguably good reason, the removal of earmarks in making legislation so you couldn't get special, you know, local favors put into a bigger bill. And then there were some ethics rules changes, which I'll let Shane speak to. But some of those did make it harder for staffers and for lawmakers to actually work together. So yes, the media landscape has been divided. Like you said, Rush Limbaugh radio, arguably it's way worse now in the sense that like there are 
super fringe like conspiracy groups that now have platforms. But I would say one of the more damaging things is just the way people used to do business in DC, I think has become more difficult. And those are the people that you really do need to sit down and, and come up with solutions at the end of the day that are, are palatable to Americans. Like like we're seeing right now amid um, this coronavirus scare, you want people to actually get something done. And if we don't have any language or any appetite for that kind of cooperation, I feel like the country could end up worse off. But Shane, I'll let you chime in there too. Yeah. I mean, I think two things that I think really hurt, and I'm going to get a lot of flack for saying this because it's very unpopular, but is ethics rules and government transparency, I think made things really, really difficult. Uh, members used to could go like the Motion Pictures uh, Association of America used to fly members out and staff and let them walk the red carpet and, and do things together. And when you share those kinds of experiences, you just, you're friendly. You just are, right? Like you sit on a plane together, you go do something fun together. It's really hard to be a jerk to that person the next day on the House floor or the Senate floor. There just used to be more sort of cool, exciting, memorable opportunities for members and staff that are no longer permissible. Transparency too, in, and I don't mean in, in, in the regulated form, I mean like having 10 different cable news channels. I remember during the Tea Party days, people would get lambasted for quote unquote living in Washington. They never come home. They never go to their district. You can't do both. You can't be at home in your district all the time and be getting big things done in Washington and building relationships. And now if you say, you know, representative so-and-so and representative so-and-so are friends, they might get primaried. So I just think the public's access to public officials, who they spend time with, what they do, I don't think it helps because I think you're giving people so many pressure points that it just becomes convenient and smart to avoid your political opponents and not look like you're even close to being friendly or agreeing or you're going to get primaried. And so, and so I think a lot of that transparency is really hurt. Members really aren't close friends for the most part. And I think they used to be long before I was there, but, but I've heard plenty of stories about fun poker games where you couldn't show up if you didn't have a member from, you know, the other party. So it was always 50, 50, just cool stuff that used to happen. And, and it just doesn't seem like that stuff happens anymore. To be sure, we're not trying to advocate for getting rid of ethics rules, but I think there's some things having, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but having come from DC, seeing how things like could work um, and seeing some of that, yeah, social fabric erode, I think has implications for policymaking and ultimately polarization. Yeah, I read some article recently, I can't remember, maybe it was The Atlantic or somewhere about um, the rise of cheap commercial air travel and um, representatives being able to fly home to their districts means that you're not really spending as much time in D.C. with your neighbors and your peers, many of whom may disagree with you and are members of other parties uh, or the opposite party, I should say. And that's a good elite theory for why it's harder to work together. So I, I buy that at that one level. But then there's also this like popular level of the rest of us here. And, mm -hmm. and okay, this is kind of an old hat explanation, but I think it makes sense. At least it makes sense to me. And that's just social media and the economics of news as a money-making business, I think just feed off of people constantly <laughs> being It's not angry. a money-making business. Let's just clarify that. Uh, <laughs> news is not that money-making. Okay. Uh, aspirationally uh, profitable. <laughs> that's the goal yeah. of news. But the way to do so is, is like crises high uh, listenership, viewership. Um, people want to turn on the news when that's happening. There's a tendency to uh, make crises out of everything because people... There's something that is so satisfying. And I think there's something that's like spiritually lacking in most people's lives because we we love finding reasons to get upset about something and to just pile on. And uh, both the news media and then also social media and the way that things are monetized digitally 
know this. And the whole point is to get everyone yelling at each other and fighting. I think that's halfway plausible. It makes most sense to me. Is there anything I'm missing there about the civility at the popular level there? Well, I'll just rewind and offer a thought that I think the cardinal sin was that the news media started giving away content for free, I know, when the internet really became mainstream. So unfortunately, that happened. It caused a complete devaluation of news and information, and it hollowed out so many newsrooms, including local ones, which is really a huge loss to the public overall. And so we lost those local voices, and now it does kind of get wound up into these big national ones and clicks dominate. And certainly when we see like especially conspiracy groups and stuff like that having a platform that's very unnerving. On the flip side, we're sort of starting to settle, I would posit. You know, outfits like Vox rely on clicks to stay free, but a lot of people like Vox. I read Vox all the time. So I think people are starting to get a little conditioned to knowing what a publication's all about and keeping that in mind. The trickier part uh, is making sure that there's not also sponsored content that appears to be editorially independent. I mean, we are supported by universities. So we say that every single show, we make that clear. They have zero editorial oversight on what we do. But, you know, affiliations are added another element here. Like, how do you trust what information you're getting? So, yes, for sure, the information landscape is difficult right now. And we can't rewind the clock, unfortunately. But I don't know that I would just blame it all on on the media here. I feel like that's such an easy scapegoat. I think arguably, I think personal profiles and individual platforms that we have through Facebook and Twitter, etc., are driving more of this and people are taking advantage of those tools. And that's where we're seeing a robust dialogue around, you know, how information should be shared on those platforms that are not news media that are, you know, other types of groups, interest groups, uh, separate from the media. So Again, want to distinct, make some distinctions here about media because I think there's different players and I think there's different missions and we should just yeah talk about them in a little more nuanced way. I tend to uh, probably take a different point of view than Julia Ross. I tend to agree with you. I, I watch news for entertainment value purely. I, I don't watch it to learn anything. I don't watch it to become aware of anything. Um, I watch it because it's hilarious. And if I want to learn, I read. Like there's still a lot of good content out there, as Julia mentioned, that that smart people are working hard on and, and producing. But most people, I think, get their news from television, and that is is a TV show. That is nothing more, in my view. And so I do think that that's part of the problem. I also think that outrage is in vogue right now. Like if you're not outraged, then you don't care. You're not even a good person. Um, You have to be outraged because everything is awful and Trump is awful and the world's unfair. And I don't think that feeds positive narratives. I think, as you said, it leads to pylons. Yeah, that person is awful. Let's all, let's all tell them how terrible they are. And I don't, I'm with you. I just don't think that's helpful at all. I don't disagree with that. I don't feel like the piling on is helpful. I just wanted to make a distinction around what kind of media we're talking about. And I think that there are some newsrooms out there that are really striving to do good work in this time. And I'd be more worried about what kind of television. Like, are you, Shane, talking about talk shows, like the news talk shows versus like, say, Fox News's nightly news program? Because even that's a distinction that people aren't appreciating anymore. And they are different. But yeah, ultimately all gets bundled up together and creates a bit of a, a bit of a media mess. Yeah. I mean, even, even Julia, and, and I'll be quick on, the, on this point, but even the hard news on, on any of these stations, like I remember when I would work, when I worked on Capitol Hill, you always had a TV on, right? And you'd flip around from different, you know, whether it's MSNBC, Fox News, so on and so forth, CNN, and you'd be watching coverage about something you're actually working on. And it's just patently false, which means either they're lying or they're, they're not well sourced, but either way you just go, all right, 
Now, when I don't know whether or not something's true, I certainly can't trust it just because I hear it on TV because I happen to know of several circumstances where it's where it's clearly not true. And, and that probably since back then, I just haven't taken uh, news very seriously. I do think that like hard reporting, and this is why I like to read, there's a lot more detail on you know the sources and who people talk to and what's going on. And th- those are mostly just fact-driven, at least the stuff that I, that I read. And there, and there are some good sources out there. But the, the TV news on in any account, even the hard news, uh, I think is terrible. You are right, though, that people do not distinguish between opinion shows and, and uh, news programs. And that is a problem as well. And we should note that podcasts are a great source of information, too. We always do our best to get the facts right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed. And outrage is, is bipartisan, too. It goes, it goes both directions, left to right, right to left. Everyone, everyone likes it these days. It's a popular thing all over the place. And also, Julia, I do agree. Uh, whenever I hear the phrase, the media, it sounds immediately conspiratorial to me. Like the media. Yeah. So, uh, the media is so many things. <laughs> yeah. So I, I agree. It's use, useful to unpack that. Well, I guess we My co- biggest fear is that it just hurts people trying to do the most transparent, best forms of media when we lump it all together. And that ultimately does a disservice to everyone, because I can tell you reporters don't get into this for the money. They get into it out of a sense of trying to do a, a social service. You know, it's a pillar of democracy, the media writ large, um, or at least what used to be like the traditional media. And even traditional media is now getting slammed. Right. So we we do have to be better. I just it is a pain point for me thinking that they're all all outlets are the same because I think it could hurt us in the end. Well, I really wanted a specific recipe that was recommended to me by a, a very experienced baker friend on New York Times. So I paid to subscribe to New York yes. Times to get that <laughs> banana bread recipe. And uh, so I'm part of the solution, Julia. I'm bringing Excellent. The, the <laughs> and the New York Times is some great climate reporting. Yeah, indeed. they They sure do. Well, we covered uh, a fair amount of this broad communication topics about climate change, but maybe we should get into the policy since you guys are both, you're wonks, you're, you're nerds, right? We can, <laughs> I can apply this to you. How much common ground actually exists on climate change? Is it, uh, we see movement on the right happening. It seems like conservatives now realize whether they you know, have had a change of heart or maybe just the politics have changed around them and it's it's okay for them to advocate for more conservative solutions to climate change and to start crossing the aisle and trying to figure out either how to make the Green New Deal less scary or to advocate for their own solutions instead of the Green New Deal. What's happening? What's likely to happen? Uh, how do you view this uh, as a whole? I think the ground is shifting. I think there's a lot more agreement than people think. The tail wags the dog though. And so the lagging indicator is always actually elected people. They always feel like I think they have the most to risk by making a public statement if it rubs, you know, some of their voters or at least, you know, the donors or the people who put TV ads on in your district and Facebook ads the wrong way. Because when you talk to Republicans like myself uh, who either, you know, work on the Hill or used to and work in companies now, there's not a lot of people saying, no, this is really not an issue and we shouldn't address it. It's more of a sober discussion about, okay, like what can we do inside of our company? And do we need government tools to do this? Or, you know, is this stuff we can do on our own? And I think we're seeing some of that in the private sector. I think Republican members of Congress and, and senators will catch up. I just don't think they fully understand how much of a public appetite there is and how even people who are aligned with them ideologically just see this as a practical problem to be solved rather than a huge sort of ideological wedge issue. And uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think we're all that far apart, but I do think that people are going to have to learn at the ballot box and, and in other ways or, or their, their donors or lobbyists are going to have to get members up to speed. But I think we're a lot closer than than uh, than it looks when you watch, uh, you know, television again, not to beat up on the media. I know we just we just cleared that air, but <laughs> but I don't think it's as bad as 
as people think it is, because I have conversations every day with people all over the ideological spectrum. And they're about how do we solve this problem, not about is there a problem and should we talk about it publicly? Julie, do you, do you agree? Do you think there is a lot of common ground that people maybe are not seeing? I think there's some meaningful stuff happening that we can point to, like in the Senate energy bill that came up recently, but was ultimately derailed, but hopefully will come back. But there were things in there around, you know, improving the electricity system, transmission distribution, energy storage. You know, my background in recent years is covering the energy sector, the clean tech sector, entrepreneurs, startups who have ultimately gone on to grow their companies and get acquired. And that is a lot of hard work. And they are the foundation of arguments that I now see climate activists using saying, hey, look, solar's cheaper. Well, a lot of people worked really hard to make that happen and they needed policy measures. And so I do think that there is broad bipartisan agreement on some of those wonky policy measures that would go a long way to helping the clean tech industry uh, continue to grow and make that economic case as climate advocates kind of make a different set of arguments. I don't think that that conflict goes away that I think you alluded to earlier about how do we structure economies? And those are some valid questions. In us discussing the validity of near-term solutions, I don't think it takes away or eliminates that broader discussion about how we how we build our societies in more sustainable ways. And so you can two-track it. You can talk about all those things at the same time, which is honestly, I think my biggest message as a communicator and a reporter is like, let's just keep multiple things in our minds at the same time, we can do that. Um, and they don't have to be antithetical. So yes, to both Shane's point that there is common ground. No, there's a lot of division also, and that's not going away. The question is, can we be smart enough to do multiple things at the same time? <laughs> okay. And, and Ross, on your bigger comment about the Green New Deal, how do we make it less scary? I think it's impossible. I think, you know, why conservatives are often skeptical of programs, whether it's healthcare or anything else, is when it feels like a very big government solution. We saw that with Obamacare. We saw that with the Green New Deal. Conservatives, by nature, hate huge government programs. They think it's too much, right? Like, why not just find the targeted solution? So as long as it's called the Green New Deal, and as long as it's about remaking the economy, there's no way to make it less scary. Like, Republicans just don't want that. And they never will, in my view. And also some Democrats may never go for that. I mean, short of Democrats winning the House, the Senate and the White House and then prioritizing climate over, say, health care, which could be a huge pressure, even if, say, a Democrat wins in the 2020 election, they will certainly in the era of coronavirus be pressured to fix the health care system and come up with some broader economic solutions. What happens to climate and how how is there is there even agreement there on what to do? Because we're already seeing um, divisions just purely among Democrats on how bold to be or not. So again, that's why it's not even just about Democrat or Republican. And we should avoid just that trap because there's a lot of different perspectives here that that are worth discussing and that are at odds and will have to ultimately be reconciled. Listener, if you're enjoying this level of nuance, you will definitely enjoy Political Climate and should check it out in your podcast app of choice. Okay, so we're optimistic about carbon removal's chances to cross the aisle in this sort of way. We like it because there's less counterfactuality. It's less confusing than avoided emissions and, and carbon markets and offsets have not historically worked as well as has maybe been intended. But we think carbon removal and specifically what we're doing at Nori is a uh, large leg up on that, or at least we, we hope so. But even if you took us out of it, we think carbon removal is super important. We need to do it anyways, because even if we stopped emitting, it's too late. We have to start pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. And we think that 
the way that we've gone about it is because Nori is a marketplace and we're trying to motivate people who maybe don't care about climate change, but know that they could make money by pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. Maybe we could motivate them to do so. And we're hoping that the end of addressing climate change appeals to people who maybe don't like markets so much or don't trust them nearly as much as other people do. So there's something in there for everyone. But of course, there's a risk that actually this appeals to no one because it is market-based and it's climate change. It's something for everyone to like and everyone to dislike. I think carbon removal could overcome that uh, little objection that I'm giving to it and be something that can be uniting. But maybe I'm biased because uh, this is Nori and I work in the industry and I want that to be the case. <laughs> I certainly agree with you. I think carbon removal should be you know, the most popular and, and easy to, to wrap our head around. I think on the left, there's some belief that it's a red herring and that it's conservatives way of trying to do nothing. I also think that people say, well, if you actually figured out carbon removal or get super efficient with carbon capture, you're then basically permitting fossil fuels to be used in perpetuity because they don't have a climate threat and that comes with other environmental issues. I don't, don't share that point of view. I, I'm a big fan of carbon removal, but I think that's some of what I've heard is, is discomfort with focusing on that as the primary solution. I don't share that view. And I think more people are going to catch up to you, Ross, where it's, it doesn't even matter. You can shut down the economy. The, the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere are too high. So carbon removal has to be part of the solution. Yeah, I think the um, IPCC report, the UN climate report, highlighted the need ultimately for carbon removal. I think they focus largely on uh, nature-based solutions, but it has prompted a big discussion around, you know, technological solutions to this issue as well. But to the point that you referenced there, Shane, until something like methane is really fully understood and we have mitigation methods for it, I think it will inevitably be controversial, carbon capture and sequestration, because we don't know what other kind of damage is being done uh, in the process of allowing fossil fuel production to continue. Uh, same goes for waterways. I think this will immediately have to branch out from a climate discussion into a broader environmental one. But if there's a way to have that and come up with some valid solutions, then I think it would be harder to have anyone you know, argue against CCS. But until that happens in an honest and transparent way, I don't think the opposition will go away. I should unpack my statement a little bit too. And one of the reasons why we're optimistic at Nori is that we think there's a possibility to show an upside to many of the, the biggest polluters right now, um, like fossil fuel companies, oil and gas companies. They have the technology and the infrastructure to pull fossil fuels out of the ground. They have the technology to put it back in, and they're well positioned to do so. But then we had David Roberts of Vox on the podcast recently. He thought this was Pollyanna. You guys had him on recently, too. As we were scheduling him, you had him on, so I had to listen to it. And I was like, I really need to get the political climate folks onto this <laughs> show as a result. But he singled out that Republican focus on carbon capture and sequestration or storage is a way of preserving the longevity and the political economic dominance of oil and gas companies. So this is trying to make climate action less scary to the people who he believes are responsible for it. So is this a criticism that you're able to grapple with? Because I think there is a chance that I might be naive about it. I want to think that big ag is going to switch to regenerative practices and start pulling it into the soil. I want to see oil and gas become direct air capture and storage companies. I want to see stuff like that. Um, I wonder if it's actually going to happen that way. Or as David suggests, are we just empowering them to live longer and to influence our politics further? 
I wouldn't think, I mean, I wouldn't even think about the question that way. I look at it as not just oil and gas companies, but for example, there are states like Wyoming and New Mexico who get such a large share of their revenue, especially Wyoming where there's no income tax from, you know, production of natural resources. And so it's not just about, oh, we have to save an oil company. I think for a lot of these uh, states, you look at uh, Wyoming senators specifically are very, you know, very big fans of carbon capture. And that's because how do we continue to keep our economic vitality going, but also, you know, not continue to, um, you know, exponentially uh, create a problem. And so, carbon capture becomes a solution. So I don't think people are hiding the ball that they're saying we want to do carbon capture because it allows us to continue to use fossil fuels. I think that's just a fact of life. I think there are people who want to continue to use fossil fuels, whether for practical reasons or budget reasons or or otherwise. And carbon capture is obviously the only way to continue to do that in a changing world with a changing climate that people are beginning to understand and want to take action on. I'll add one other twist here is, you know, through uh, events and things that I've done with the Atlantic Council, which is inherently looking at energy issues from a global perspective, uh, U.S. dominance in oil and gas has been a huge geopolitical bargaining chip. And uh, it has allowed the U.S. to be bolder in many other aspects of its foreign policy, not necessarily in good ways or ways we all agree with, but it has been a huge impact. And we're actually seeing plummeting oil prices now uh, and some battles between Saudi Arabia and Russia and others because of U.S. dominance in this space. And arguably, the country is safer because it has its own supply, because right now we do currently rely on this fuel. And so I'm not a deep expert in this topic, but I will say there are some geopolitical advantages to having these resources here, at least in our current system. So that does create a discussion around, okay, let's at least make it clean. So I do think there's going to be pressure from the geopolitical perspective to maintain oil and gas here, in addition to the jobs point that Shane pointed out. And so, yeah, how do we then do that in a sustainable manner? And then you could also be challenging these companies to boost their investments in clean energy and clean technology as they are doing. You know, Shell recently became an actual electricity utility in the United Kingdom, and they're investing. They're really the leading investor in some of these clean tech solutions. The question is, how much are they investing? Are they being genuine in this transition from oil company to energy company? I think that could be an interesting avenue for these big corporations going forward. But it will only happen uh, with continued public pressure and policy pressure. But I think there could be a medium ground here where these companies do continue to play a key role in our economies, but they are transitioning to green at the same time. Uh, certainly, any company that's big and has a lot of money will influence politics. So I do agree with David Roberts on that. That becomes down to how do we make sure that the money stays out of politics? And that's a, a separate line of discussion. But I don't know, a few different points to consider there at the very least. Yeah, it's not a simple question. So it was not a simple answer. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, what do you think people can do to help make progress on climate change um, and work together? What are some steps they can do either on a policy level or a personal level to have productive conversations and to not feel nearly so helpless that we're headed into the oblivion? Oh, just give up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> start, start reading apocalyptic no. literature like a lot of articles no. have been suggesting lately. It does not seem like a good idea right now, but yeah. I mean, I have found, at least through this podcast and in other elements of life, when you meet someone face to face, it is really hard to see your differences first rather than your similarities. Like I did a road trip through Mississippi and going to visit small shops and artists and stuff like that. You're just reminded that we all would like to live lives with clean air, fresh water, entertainment, beautiful things and creativity. And 
we forget then for just a minute that our politics might be different. So sometimes I think returning to that most basic human level can help us then build a foundation for going forward. Like as a journalist, I view myself as trying to tell stories of people on that level and trying to find more avenues to do so just so we can, yeah, remind ourselves that we're not living in Facebook all the time. We are living in the real world and we have a lot more in common than we do that's different. And if we can, you know, remember that a little bit more, we might actually find some solutions to these really tough questions. I'm not trying to be overly Pollyannish about this, but I do think that little dose of reality and, and the good can help us move forward in a bolder and more, you know, happy way. Yeah, I think too, you know, what can people do? Uh, I think you asked. I, I really think people underestimate the value of reaching out to your elected leaders. And I don't mean protesting outside their office. I don't mean sending them a chain email that you got from someone else. I don't mean saying you're awful and you're killing the planet. But, you know, I've worked for members of Congress. And one of the things that comes up in every weekly meeting is what are we getting the most mail on? What are we getting the most calls on? Members want to understand not what the Washington news cycle is telling them, but what people back home are thinking about. Is it healthcare? Is it some local issue? Is it other things? And so if they hear from their staff assistant at every meeting, like 80 of uh, people from our district called about climate change. Oh, liberals? No, no. People who support you. Um, that kind of stuff adds up. It goes back to the tail wagging the dog. But if people think that their constituents really want this, um, they'll eventually policymaking will move because you ultimately have to be responsive to your voters and your supporters. Yeah. That's something you often say, right, Shane, is like you have to, you know, give some cover, I guess, to lawmakers to engage on this. And once, you know, the media cycle shifts, you think things will shift. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've heard you use phrases like that before. Yeah. I think that people just things become normalized. So like I used to work for a congressman named Bob Latta, who's a wonderful guy. And he really wanted to always, you know, be in touch with his constituents. So he would go to, you know, Walmarts or other church or popular places and just hang out and make himself available and want to learn and hear about what's going on. And if someone said, Hey, I'm, I'm a farmer, I'm really concerned about you know, climate change. We, our crop yields have been down or, or something like that. He would take that very seriously, which is different than saying, hey, we got, you know, 8,000 of the same emails forwarded from uh, an advocacy group. Uh, I think when people actually hear that the people they represent care about an issue, they start to think about it less as like, how is this going to play in the Washington news cycle? And more as, uh, okay, this is something that I need to address. And then you direct your staff, start thinking about, you know, where we can be helpful here. And I, I, I really, I know that's a long run and I know people say we need solutions yesterday, but something is better than nothing. And I do think that, that continued attention to this will drive a different mindset. And I think um, policymakers getting exposure to this is helping. We forget because we work on these issues all the time that lawmakers have a lot of issues on their plate. And honestly, climate may not even be front of mind. This goes for lawmakers across the aisle. And I know that there are some groups trying to help increase their exposure, like Republic EN, which does field trips with Republican lawmakers to have them see, okay, here's the pollution in this aquifer, or here's what coastal erosion has done. And I think, uh, you know, it's hard for anyone to argue against something when they see it with their own eyes. And so there are groups like that doing, doing work that I think is having an impact. That's all great advice. I think the only thing that I would add is having these conversations in person and not online it will probably serve listeners better. And also, I found that uh, if I've ever used a label to describe my beliefs or someone has used a label to describe themselves who's speaking with me, 
I find it makes it much easier for everyone to short circuit the conversation and argue against whatever the worst version of that label is, rather than being like, oh, this is a flesh and blood human um, <laughs> with opinions that are delicate and nuanced, and we can't have a productive conversation. But as soon as we switch into these sort of larger identities, uh, it just becomes... I don't, I don't know, a small instantiation of what is a larger battle outside of these two small people. So that's, that's, <laughs> I've often had really productive conversations with people that I don't, I don't agree with on everything, but I think they're smart, interesting people that are worth talking to, but almost never online or never via text. It's always in person. I don't know if that's been your experience too, but it's definitely mine. Yeah. We promote drinking buddies that yeah, we're very, very pro yeah, getting together in person. But we do try to have those conversations digitally here through our podcast to sort of give a shameless plug. So there are ways to have the conversations. They're tricky to do, but you know, we strive to have them and create some more space to do it elsewhere. Well, yours is at least, you know, with voice. So maybe I could say digitally is okay, but it has to be voice. And I think the more body language and eye contact and stuff like that you have, probably the more, less reactive I think people would be. But at least for sure. Yeah, there's something about text that even your significant other or colleagues or whatever, there's something about text messages that I think just doesn't work well at the brain. And I think makes people uh, a little bit crazy. I don't know. If I ever get that solo K text message, I go berserk. I'm like, K, what does that mean? Are you pro the decision we've just made? <laughs> what does just a solo K mean? <laughs> Can we at least write OK? Wow. What a great Personal example. gripe. <laughs> it's there to get under your and skin, and Julia. And nail you. It I like, know. Sounds like they got you. They got you Maybe good. it's just me. It's also, Ross, you hit on this. It's easy to disagree with an idea. It's hard to be disagreeable with a person. So in 140 characters, I can say, this bill is garbage. And then you can say, you're garbage. Like the, the, the bill's great because we're talking about a bill and we disagree about the bill. Whereas like you sit down uh, I remember the first time Brandon and I really hung out outside of like work. We were at the the Solar Summit, GTM Solar Summit in San Diego, and I was sitting at the bar by myself watching the basketball playoffs. I think it was at the time. Brandon came up and we just like talked about sports, and I didn't even know he was a huge sports junkie. And uh, then you like the person, and now you're not disagreeing over an idea. You're talking to someone you like about an issue, and then you can share ideas. But it's true, the 140 characters or, or whatever your text messages are directed at an issue rather than a person are almost never going to be productive. And it goes for all kinds of you know content out there. It is hard to carve out a space for nuance and have nuance be your brand and your label in a world, like we're saying, really rewards clickable content, and it rewards a strong opinion. So... That's why I think all the more reason for having conversations like this and hopefully ours and we are finding people have been thankful for that, which is really heartening. We're not saying this is the one and only model and do away with other types of content. Obviously not. But it is heartening to know that people are game to have this kind of dialogue. And hopefully we have more of it because it could, you know, could help could help with some of the biggest issues of our time, including climate. That's one of the things that we've gotten comments about, too, from listener feedback is they like the feeling of independence that we try to have and of being fair. We, we get a lot of comments about that. Although the nastiest criticisms we ever get on the show is we've had a couple of guests on who were sort of hard to wrangle and had very strong opinions, and we did not adequately challenge them. And that is a, a failure of mine as a co-host of the show. Mm. But also there's something I'm, I don't know if you've had guests on where you're like, wow, that was unmanageable and we did not do a very good job. <laughs> But mostly just Shane every episode. Oh. No. <laughs> Shane, no. do you have strong opinions? Is that is that a true statement? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think we've had any guests go too far in any direction that that made me uh, uncomfortable. What I will say is, I get feedback 
from listeners that I don't, conservative ones, of course, that I don't sufficiently challenge everything that Brandon and Julia say. And I have to remind people, I'm not there to win. I'm there to have a conversation about points of view. So if a guest says something that I think is terribly off base, I don't need to beat them. I just need to provide context of what they're saying through my view. And Julia will do the same and, and Brandon will do the same. So I don't worry so much about pushing back on the narrative of guests, uh, but I do think that people need to understand that part of the reason our show is productive is because every time you say something that I don't think is true, I don't interrupt you and say, no, 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 that's garbage. I'm not a live fact checker. It's not a real-time fact check. It's a discussion. And so I think if you treat it as a discussion, then I don't worry about it. If you're treating it as like, if you're telling people, here's information from the government on how you stay safe, then you better make sure it's accurate, obviously. Well, that feeds very nicely into one of the last questions I want to ask here. Um, It's a Nori favorite. We've asked this on reversing climate change a number of times. It's a hard one, though. So I didn't prep you for this one. I hope it's not too big of a surprise. Um, But for both of you, Julia and Shane, who is the smartest person uh, you disagree with? Who's someone that you don't see eye to eye with, but still respect and think they have interesting things to say? Obviously, Brandon is an easy choice for you, Shane. I'll allow it if, if you must. Ooh, um, that's tough. I I don't want to take the easy way out. I do uh, have a great deal of of respect and admiration for Brandon and learn a lot from him, but I'd like to at least try to be a little more expansive. One person that I've always admired um, is Nancy Pelosi because of her, you know, sort of tactical legislative abilities. I I think, you know, maybe had you asked me this question a year ago, I would have said Nancy Pelosi, don't love her policy, love her tactical abilities. I don't see that as much. You know, I'm going to go with Harry Reid. Harry Reid is someone who I think was grossly underappreciated by the common person and probably, you know, with good reason. Senators don't need to be famous for being uh, tacticians, but that guy had very strong control of a chamber that is nearly uncontrollable and did more uh, under the Obama administration than I think, you know, could have even almost got done without him. And frankly, I don't agree with any of those things. So I'm not saying, you know, I admire him because he did great things. I just admire his ability to do the things that I didn't like. Uh, So hopefully that's a reach. What about you, Julia? Okay. Hmm. This is tough. You had like a a minute or two to decide. You had a little little (laughs) grace period. Yeah. Well, hopefully this answers your question. I would say um, one of my uncles who is an executive, was an executive at a fossil fuel company in Canada. And Growing up studying poli sci and ultimately some and learning about the energy sector and climate change, et cetera, uh, it really bothered me like how that industry could work and exist. But in learning from him, I've also come to understand, you know, some other elements specific to Canada around like how the economy relies on the industry, worker issues. And so that really helped inform my journalism background and made me want to try and get to the bottom of things. And so my idealistic undergrad self, I think, kind of evolved into like, okay, how can I maybe use my skills as to as to be the communicator and platform so everyone can kind of learn together? The good, the bad, the ugly. I'm not trying to say, oh, the Canadian oil and gas industry is great because my uncle worked in it. I'm saying it was a challenge. And uh, learning from someone directly, though, I have found helpful and uh, just helps us have these nuanced conversations that we've been talking about this whole show. So uh, I guess that would be a person that uh, I respect and appreciate, even though, uh, you know, took some learning. Okay, I think those are good answers. But meanwhile, for our listeners here, they like what you have brought to the show. They want to follow up. How do they listen to political climate? Do you have any ideas for good episodes you might steer people? We have a 
you know, hundred plus episodes of this show. So people oftentimes are overwhelmed and don't yeah. know where to start. How do you, how, how would you get someone new into your show? Great. Yeah. Well, please just look up political climate, two words, uh, on pretty much any podcasting platform. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all the above, and subscribe there. You can also find all of our episodes. Uh, You can go to www.politicalclimatepodcast.com and go to the episodes page and and find some episodes there as well. You'll also find other ways to listen. Uh, And we're on Twitter at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate. And so we like to have a good discussion there. We share other kinds of news articles, have, you know, discussions with listeners. So hopefully you'll check us out there as well. And for episodes to start with, uh, you mentioned our episode, Dave Roberts, uh, David Roberts. Check that one out. It's just from the end of December. We have one with Arnold Schwarzenegger from the beginning of this year on why he supported uh, Greta Thunberg, the teen climate activist. And we are now uh, well into our series with the Think Tank Third Way, looking at the fastest path to reaching net zero emissions by 2050, if not sooner. So we looked at the climate science underpinning that. We then had on former Department of Energy. Energy Secretary. Then we had on former Energy Secretary Stephen Chu to discuss technologies in our technology toolkit. And now we've gone on to talking policies and ultimately labor, how people of color are affected by the climate, by climate change and the energy transition. So check that out. The Path to Zero series airs monthly on political climate. Shane, you got any favorites you want to share with the listeners and also your Twitter handle if anyone wants to come on and uh, continue the the noble tradition of yelling at you online? Absolutely. So uh, Twitter handle is at Shane Skelton, just my name, S-H-A-N-E-S-K-E-L-T-O-N. I think there are a lot of fun episodes to listen to. I think, you know, I would sort of divide our episodes into two buckets. One is, you know, commentary where it's Brandon, Julia, and I talking about either, you know, new news stories or happenings in the climate space. Um, I personally like all those. Some people like those. Some people want to hear from guests and get, you know, information from a professional in a certain field. My favorite episode, if I had to steer people to it, was our solutions episode at the end of last year, where instead of talking about, you know, the practicality of and the politics surrounding climate change, we actually talked about uh, if you were king for a day, what policies would you start to execute that you think are achievable, you know, politically and technically uh, at the moment. So that that's a good one. I think that was last December. And again, I, I like sort of the, the news cycle uh, friendly episodes, but there's something for anyone to choose from. If you're interested in, you know, what's happening in the Arctic, there's an expert talking about that. If you're interested in, you know, how the news covers it, there's David Roberts talking about that. So I think it's sort of a pick your poison, but my favorite episode is the solutions one. Great. Well, all those links are in the show notes. If you'd like to follow up and listen to Political Climate, our guests, Julia Piper and Shane Skelton, co-hosts of Political Climate. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ross. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.